have our Bible readings now. The first one is Matthew 12, 38 to 45, which you'll find on page 978 of the Church Bibles. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at, judgment, at the judgment with the generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it, Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of the man is worse than the first. This is how it will be with with this wicked generation. The next reading is from 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 13 to 22. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and accursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred commandment that had been passed on to them. Of the prophet. Of them the proverbs are true. A dog that returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. For me, one of the real highlights of the last six months at church has been our first baptismal service. Uh, In the past, I think we've come back here, uh, but we had earlier this year our first baptisms at Cornerstone. A real memorable event. It was memorable for a number of reasons, partly for some of us uh, being there at two or three in the morning, fixing the baptistry together and filling it with water, but also memorable because of the stories that the six people told about their encounter with God and what difference it had made in their lives. I've been to to many baptisms, I've taken and baptised many people but can never be failed to be moved by the stories people tell. And their stories are so different. Stories of gradual 
slow encounters with God. Stories of sudden dramatic moments when God has intervened. Stories of older people, stories of younger people. And what all these stories have in common is the way that an individual life has been changed by God. We would have a number of phrases we use to describe that kind of change. We might talk about conversion, or being born again, or becoming a Christian. And one of the images which our passage uses, which is what conversion literally means, is about turning around. I'm standing here with my back to God, that in some way in my life God is not at the centre of all that I'm doing. Yet this process of conversion is about turning around, to face God, to experience God's love and grace, to make God the centre of all that I do. In many ways, we ought to rephrase that, really, and say, it's not about me turning around. It's about God coming and tapping me on the shoulder and coming to find me in that far country where I'm lost and turning me around. Now, the situation that 2 Peter talks about is a little bit different. It talks about the fact that here are people whom God has come to find and turn around to face him. But somehow, for some reason, they have now turned their backs on God again. God has changed them and turned them round but they've turned their backs on God again. They've known God's love and grace. They've known God's presence and promise in their lives. But somehow, for some reason, they've turned around again. We might ask perhaps a number of questions this morning that come from that. The first is this. What did they do to turn away from God? There seem to be two things involved, and I think Jeff began to look at this last week. The first is to do with what they knew or understood. Our our passage here in 2 Peter talks about the whole conversion experience in terms of what we know through the knowledge, it says, of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. After knowing it, to have turned back. Our knowledge, our thinking, our understanding matters. And there seems to have been people here who knew or thought they knew and understood, but turned their thinking around. And the key word is in verse 19. It talks about they promised them freedom. It seems that there were a group of false teachers in the church who believed and understood and thought they knew that their freedom meant 
they were no longer under some kind of moral rules of behaviour. That the kind of morality that was part of their upbringing no longer applied to them. They were free from those kind of moral constraints. And on top of that, they were free from any kind of judgment from God. That was not what God was going to do. It's possible, for example, that they thought that the physical parts of life meant nothing. You could eat as much as you wanted and gorge yourself, or you could eat nothing, it didn't matter. You could have sex with whoever you wanted, or with no one at all, it didn't matter. Only what mattered was somehow the spiritual thing inside. And so with this kind of particular knowledge and understanding, it led to certain decisions and actions in the way the things they did, the choices they made. So both in their knowledge and in their choices, we're told they turned their backs again on God. A second question we must ask then is, well, what are the consequences? And here we read in verse 20, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. You have your back to God, yet God finds you and turns you round. Yet you then decide to turn your back on God again. Surely you're where you started. How can that be worse than at the beginning? Well, our passage doesn't really tell us, but it, it, it might hint at two things. The first is, perhaps it's worse because of a future judgment. I mean, the Bible is clear. There will be a day that comes when God will ask each of us to give an account of the things that we have done. Jesus says, for example, in the Gospel, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. From the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So knowing God, and knowing God's love and grace and goodness, but spurning that and turning our back on that, well, we'll have to give an account for doing that. We may be in a worse position because we have been given so much more. And that phrase about the worse now than at the beginning is, of course, taken directly from the words of Jesus. These are words Jesus said in the Gospels and we've read and heard that passage from Matthew's Gospel. Jesus' contemporaries are asking for a sign. They want Jesus to do something that's dramatic and uh, powerful that will convince them once and for all that he has come from God. And Jesus says, I'm doing nothing for you. I'll give you no sign than the sign of Jonah. In other words, my death and resurrection. He describes them as an evil generation and says it will be worse for them 
on this coming day of judgment. Are they worse than us? Are we somehow in a better position and better people than they are? I don't think that's what Jesus means. The difference was that they had Jesus with them. He lived and he walked among them. What greater sign could they need than actually having Jesus with them? They had been given much more than any other generation and therefore will be brought to account for not responding when Jesus was there in the midst of them. Or maybe it's worse because not so much only of a future judgment, but because of our our present experience. Maybe actually having turned their backs on God and choosing other things, there were those niggling doubts inside that said to them, I'm not quite sure this is what God wants me to do. The conscience that is pricked where you have to live with this difficult tension of knowing that somewhere in the back of your mind this is wrong, yet wanting to justify to yourself that this is right. That inner angst and guilt caused by knowing God's goodness but turning your back and not living that way. So here, a group of people who had turned their backs on God again, and Peter says, they will be worse than they were at the beginning. Our final question then is, well, what does that mean for us? Here's a passage about people who have understood in a wrong way and made choices in a wrong way and will need to experience the consequence of those choices. But what does it mean for us? It will be very easy at this point to think about others and point the finger at others and say, well, there are those other churches who think this. And there are those other churches that do that and to shake our head and to tut and to say, well, they've turned their back on God. And we're good at pointing the finger. And we quite like to point the finger because it makes us feel a bit better. And humankind have always pointed the finger at others. I don't want to go there this morning. I want to take us on a much harder journey and to ask a much more difficult question. Here are words of warning. How do we hear them as a warning to us this morning.
And that is genuinely a difficult question. These are words written to a specific group of people at a specific time who had made some very clear choices. And I'm not going to suggest in any way that we are like them in that, that we have turned our back on God, that we are like dogs returning to vomit or, or pigs wallowing back in the mud. But how do these words live for us this morning? What do they say to us? What warning will they give us in our very different context, in our different lives? Maybe they should make a stop and think and ask if there are ways in which our understanding falls short of the gospel and so our actions fall short of the gospel. I mean, after all, Jesus preached the gospel that promised everything. God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's presence. But demanded much. Come and follow me. And there's always been and always will be for us the temptation to find ways of replacing some of the hard things of the gospel and making them a little bit easier, a bit more straightforward, a bit less demanding than the words of Jesus really are. And we'll always find ways of trying to justify to ourselves why in our understanding, well, actually, we're doing all right, really. I mean, let me give you one example. There is much that Jesus says in the Gospel about our neighbours, about loving our neighbours, about loving God, about loving our neighbour as ourself, even when it's hard and costly. But we say to ourselves, well, all these hundreds and thousands and millions and billions of people in the world, how can they possibly all be my neighbour? How can I possibly love all these people? So I can't. I've got to choose just some. And I'll choose the ones I like. Now, of course, I, I wouldn't admit to myself I'm choosing the ones that I like. But what I'll do is I'll choose some. And the real, hard, radical call of Jesus to love those who are unlike us and those we do not like, well, we stop ourselves from hearing that because we've always understood our neighbours to be those, well, who are close to us, who are like us and who we like. Yet, in our changed understanding, we have our changed moral choices. Maybe, just maybe, we'll find that when that day comes, and we have to give our account 
we will have some awkward questions to answer about the choices that we have made and the way that we've used our money and our time and our priorities. And we might say to God, I didn't understand that that's what you meant. And God will say back, why didn't you listen then? It seems to me that the right response from hearing those words of warning is to examine ourselves and to say, are there ways that in our understanding and our actions, well, maybe we've begun to turn our back towards God, being deaf to some things that God has been saying. And that's not an easy, quick prayer that's out the way and finished with. That's asking God to show us those things in our lives where we have justified one way of thinking and acting when God has called us to be doing something else. But then, it's right that we come back and seek God's forgiveness. And here is a table spread with bread and wine that speaks again of God's love and grace. Of the God who comes into that far country to find us, to turn us round and bring us home. Here again, we have the chance to meet with God afresh. Not just remember the past, but encounter God's mercy and grace. And maybe, maybe if for you this morning, there is some sense for you of saying, well, maybe I have turned my back again on God. Hear God's invitation to come again this morning and know again his mercy, his forgiveness, and his grace. Let's be quiet together for a moment and pray. Thank <laughs> you.